Whispers in the Trees is a dark podcast currently focusing on the Great White North, surrounding all of our grisly truths from the kindest place on earth to the head-scratching unknowns hidden beneath our snow. My name is Mads, and join me today on a telling of the crimes of the Ken and Barbie killers. Before we begin, today's case will involve torture, dismemberment, murder, child abuse, animal abuse, sexual assault on minors, and strong language because I may as well tack that on there as well. Viewer discretion is strongly advised. If you want to help me continue my passion in bringing these dark secrets to light, consider supporting me at buymeacoffee.com forward slash whispers podcast. Now, join me around my campfire. These are my whispers in the trees. I'm not going to lie to you guys, this might be one of the most controversial cases in Canadian history. It's for sure one of the most famous. It's one of those cases that if you mention one of these two people around here, the other person you're talking to's skin will probably crawl. The Scarborough Rapist attacked 24 women in the Toronto suburb throughout the 80s and 90s. The primary target of his was teenage girls and young women who were usually walking alone from a bus stop. There was one occasion when he broke into the victim's house, but this wasn't really his preferred method of doing things. He liked to do it outside and in the open. I guess he had some voyeuristic needs inside of him. His first victim was May 4th, 1987. He assaulted a 21-year-old woman right out front of her parents' house for over half an hour. In a sick way, this is kind of impressive because it was in the open, it was out front, and it was pretty long. This is what he fed on. This is what he enjoyed. And as much as I don't like saying that kind of thing, that's what he liked, was doing things that someone else would deem impressive. This man was Paul Bernardo. Paul Kenneth Bernardo was born August 27, 1964, to Mother Marilyn and Father Kenneth. They were a wealthy family, but they were incredibly dysfunctional. Big shocker! Marilyn had been raised in a fairly stable home, but she was alleged to be emotionally abusive to her children, and would often leave them at home alone for long periods of time. Kenneth was raised by a successful businessman who was known to abuse his wife and children. When Kenneth opted to not join the family business and become an accountant, starting his own family, the lessons he learned from his father shined through. Paul was the youngest of three, having an older brother and an older sister. Cyclical abuse. We've talked about this a lot on this channel. None of this is going to be an excuse for Paul. It is just going to be a way to explain his actions and where things come from. Please do not take anything of what I say as excusing his behavior. Paul was known as a bouncy, smiling little boy even as his family life turned completely upside down. His father, Kenneth, was caught molesting Paul's sister and another little girl, causing him to go to prison for child molestation. This caused Marilyn to withdraw from her family, choosing to spend most of her time in the family basement and leaving her children to fend for themselves even more than she already had been. 
I kind of see where Paul got his idea of women from. His father was a sick fuck, and his mom didn't really treat them well. What a great start. When he was 16, it was during an argument, or during one of her episodes of verbally abusing Paul, if you believe what he claims, Marilyn told Paul that his father was not really his father. Remember when I said she would leave her kids for long periods of time? Yeah, it was because she'd been having an affair with an ex-boyfriend that Kenneth really just tolerated while he was working. This really devastated Paul. It caused him to call his mother all sorts of names, like, quote, slav and whore. It was at this time that Paul met his first love, who looked a lot like his later wife. She was attractive and claimed that Paul had been incredibly controlling and overprotective. When she left him for his friend, he lit everything she had ever given him on fire. He already had a history of lighting fires, as he'd been caught lighting fires with his Boy Scout troop when he wasn't supposed to, when he was really young. So this shows a pattern of escalation. This was the girl who had taken his virginity, and it is believed that this is where his kind of idea of the perfect woman would come from. This woman would later come back and testify that while Paul had been controlling in this way, she did not feel he could be responsible for these crimes. After this, he relied on lying to girls to get some one-night stands, and when he did get into relationships, they didn't last longer than a month. When women would start telling people about what, they, what he was doing to them, he would threaten to kill them. He learned his father was a peeping Tom, and when the secret was outed to the neighborhood, his views on women continued to spiral. He was not told his father was a peeping Tom. He found out through neighborhood gossip. So life just continues to spiral for this boy. He had a distinct hatred for women, and he was not afraid to show it. His attacks were fairly quick, and they were in the open as well as brutal. I don't think half an hour is quick, but hey. His behavior continued to escalate through 1986 from being just controlling with his girlfriend to being ultra controlling and cheating on her as well. He began to make obscene phone calls from his workplace and had a restraining order set on him from one woman, as well as beginning a relationship with a second woman. So now he's got two relationships and a restraining order. And he was so controlling that even when they both found out about each other, they stayed with him because they felt like they had no other choice. I'm not blaming consensual polyamory or any BDSM subcultures for what happens here. Do you, boo, as long as it is consensual between adults. No consent, no sex. They're underage, they can't give consent, no consent, no sex. The distinct difference between polyamory and cheating is that beautiful C word. No, not cunt, consent. Polyamory is only polyamory if all partners involved know about it and agree to it. Otherwise, it's just scummy cheating. Consent can be taken at any time. Please remember that, you guys. And if consent is taken at any time and someone keeps going, this is rape. And if someone is underage, 
and you're not within close in age laws depending on your country I'm only talking about close in age laws because that's Canadian this is also considered rape a 19 year old girl was assaulted for over an hour in the backyard of her parents house on May 14 1987 10 days after his first assault I don't think that's quick he attempted his third assault on July 27th, taking a bit of a break. He only beat the girl. He didn't complete the sexual assault. He wanted to do it. He intended to do that, but she fought back too hard. You go, girl. Always fight back your attackers, guys. It's proven that fighting back and being a difficult person to assault can save your life. Draw attention, fight, run, do what you can. Frankly, even if you don't make it out, and I pray that that never happens to anyone, at least you will have hopefully left marks on the attacker. Injure them. Fuck them up as best as you can. Especially dig your nails in. Get the DNA under your nails. Leave an injury that will be proof for the police a struggle happened. DNA under the nails so they can track them. Injury so that they can't come back and say this was consensual. No. Injure them. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> anyway. So one night, Paul goes out on the prowl and he goes into a restaurant. In that same restaurant is Carla Homolka. Carla was born to mother Dorothy and father Carol Homolka. Her father was a traveling salesman that drank and fought with her mother often when the kids were young, leaving their three children to comfort each other. She was known to be a smart kid, loved by her teachers, and known for her good grades and love of animals. She had a thing for Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, enjoying crime books, and soon moving on to more occult fascinations in her teens. She would play with Ouija boards and try to call spirits with her friends. She was bold and used to boys paying attention to her. She was what everyone back in the day wanted, including Paul himself. Carla was 17 when she met her soon-to-be husband, who was 23. It was October of 1987. Technically, this was not illegal. In Canada, our age of consent currently is 16, which only changed from 14 in 2008. And there cannot be a position of power by the adult. It has to be consensual in every way. We do have close-in-age consent laws, like when someone is 14 or 15. They can be with someone who is within five years of their legal age, and if someone is 12 or 13, there can be a two-year age band. There cannot be a relationship of trust or authority or dependency. There cannot be any way of exploitation, such as photos or videos taken. This is child pornography. Even if it's a teen taking photos or videos of a teen, for any of you teens listening when you shouldn't be here listening. I also should note that this is my very basic understanding of the law. This is not legal advice, and while I do believe teens can be teens with each other, each other, once someone is over 18 and going for someone underage, that's a problem. Remember for all of you teens out there, again, why are you here? But since you are, if someone cannot be within their own age range and they are targeting minors, they are targeting you for probably predatory reasons. You may feel mature for your age, but this person is just immature for theirs. But anyway, back to the case, because that's what we're here to listen to. 
Carla worked for a pet store and went to a pet food convention with a friend. The two had stopped at the hotel restaurant to get some dinner when Paul and Carla locked eyes. They were magnetized to each other and spent the entire night talking. Even though at some point in this conversation they were having, the coworker of Carla's got up and left to go back to the room because she felt like she was third feeling. Paul spent a lot of time with Carla during this time, seeing her twice a week and weaving his way into her life. He began to control every aspect of it, how she ate, how she dressed, how she could do her makeup and style her hair. He was in charge, and even though he told her he was upset, she was not a virgin, he could deal with that. He could quote unquote move past it. He would pursue her anyway. He and Carla got hot and heavy quickly, escalating quicker when Paul found out Carla enjoyed BDSM as well. He became her master and she his slave in their words to explain why he was being so overbearing and controlling. She had rules her friends would later find in her room. Rules like, never let anyone know our relationship is less than perfect. Don't talk back to Paul. Be a perfect girlfriend to Paul. If Paul asks for a drink, bring him one quickly and happily. Remember, you're stupid. Remember, you're ugly. Remember, you're fat. And I don't know why I tell you these things because you never change. This list of rules was in with her entries about her food intake and exercise regimen. To punish her, he would sometimes circle her like a shark while she was sitting on the floor and he would make her close her eyes and when she wasn't expecting it, he would just lash out and kick her. Sometimes he would just spit in some bread and force her to eat it or things like this. December 16th, 1987 would be Paul's successful third attempt. This time the attack lasted an hour on a 15-year-old girl. The next day, the Toronto police issued a warning against the women of Scarborough traveling at night, especially on buses. December 24th would be his fourth sexual assault. He actually assaulted the 17-year-old victim with the knife he commonly used on these so-called outings. I couldn't find any information about whether it was the blade or the handle. Because she survived, I'm assuming it's the handle. I'm praying it is the handle. This is when he earned the nickname, the Scarborough Rapist. April 18th, 1988 was his next attack. A 17-year-old girl for 45 minutes. Again, I don't know why they described these as quick. 45 minutes, half an hour, an hour. I don't know why people and authorities were thinking of these as quick. These are like, these are ridiculous. When I think of quick, I think 15, 20 minutes, not half an hour. May 25th, 1988, Paul, we learned, is a bold motherfucker. An officer was watching a bus stop and Paul continued to sit and wait under a bush, waiting for his next victim to come up with this officer patrolling the fucking bus stop. Obviously, the officer caught Paul and a pursuit entailed, but unfortunately, the officer lost him. It was May 30th, 1988, when Paul started to branch out from Scarborough. His next attack was committed 25 miles away in Clarkton. It was half an hour against an 18-year-old victim. I believe he was branching out from Scarborough because of this officer catching him and possibly seeing him. I think he was scared and thought he had been caught, so he wanted to move away. 
October 4th, 1988, he tried to assault another girl, but the girl fought him off. Fuck yeah, another one fought him off. But unfortunately for her troubles, she was stabbed twice in the thigh and butt. Twelve stitches later, she would survive. November 16th, 1988, he succeeded in his next assault, assaulting the 18-year-old in the backyard of her parents' home. He really liked getting them in the yards of her of their parents' houses, which is very bold as well, I'm noticing. It's an odd pattern and almost asking to be caught, but I think that was probably part of the thrill for him. But again, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not an analyst, I'm nothing professional. I just Google and research. Paul at this time was still dating Carla, but had also gained a second girlfriend named Anna. He and Carla's little sister, Tammy, became very close. Paul became like an older brother in Tammy's eyes, according to the family, but Paul made a very strange request that was actually described more like a demand that Tammy not sleep with anyone. He wanted her to remain a virgin. More and more victims would come forward to this point, enough that on November 17th, 1988, a task force would be created to stop him by the Metropolitan Toronto Police. They tried to find leads, but didn't really get anything significant until May of 1990. That's really a lot of time to just keep on keeping on. It was thanks to the brave women that came forward we learned his MO. Typically, he would grab the woman and drag them somewhere more secluded, like into an open garage or into some bushes. Occasionally, he would demand to be given oral sex, i.e., have them suck him off, to be followed by occasionally he would finger them, and then he would vaginally and anally rape them. I feel like I should be clear. Fingering them without consent is also rape and sexual assault. He would smash their heads on the ground, beat them, slash them with the knife he had cut their clothes off with, and threaten them. He would make them say self-deprecating things like they were his slave and he was their master. He would tell them he would return to repeat his actions or kill them, and he would sometimes make it clear he would return by saying something to prove he had stalked them for a little bit, something like their bedtime routine that he'd seen through their window. When he was done, he would take a piece of jewelry or a purse as a trophy, and he was gone into the night, leaving them to pick themselves up. December 27, 1988, he tried another attack, but a neighbor caught him attempting the assault and chased him off. Thank God for this young woman. June 28, 1989, he tried yet again, but the girl's screams alerted neighbors and he ran off with scratches on his face. August 15, 1989, he saw another 15-year-old girl in a bus shelter that he wanted. 45 minutes of torture for her before he was on his way home. December 22, 1989, a 19-year-old girl in the stairwell of a parking lot would be his 10th victim. 30 minutes and he was gone. May 26th was the attack on a 19-year-old woman. It was horrific and lasted an hour, but thanks to this brave young woman, the police were able to get a computer composite sketch that they could release to the public. July 1990, Paul was finally interrogated by two police officers. There would be two reports that the person they were looking for was him based on the sketch that the authorities had released. The first report was from a bank teller that recognized him. The second was from one of his best friends. His best friend recognized the sketch and knew that Paul had been brought in one other time for a rape in December of 1987, 
but not actually questioned. The authorities couldn't prove anything, so he was let go. Because of the way his buddy phrased things, the police weren't really sure they could believe him. See, his buddy said that Paul enjoyed rough sex, analingus, and anal sex. And the authorities felt this was awkward and stilted. So even though they felt this way, they decided to look into the lead and collect his DNA. Thank God for friends like this. Fuck the snitches get stitches motto. That works if it's at the last bag of Cheetos. That shit ain't for murder and rape. Mm -mm. The DNA samples would be submitted and you would think something would have happened, that this nightmare would have ended, but it didn't. It took two more years for that DNA to be tested. It sat on a shelf waiting in line behind all the other samples for two years, just collecting dust as Paul continued to ruin lives. Paul just started falling more and more into a life of crime. He quit his job as an accountant and started smuggling cigarettes and making fake license plates and doing other things like that. He found that this was making more money. Following his interview with the police, he changed up the MO and moved locations again. The Scarborough rapes stopped and the St. Catharines rapes began. He also assaulted in the morning away from bus stops and attacked his youngest victim yet. The poor girl was only 14 at the time of her attack. At this time, Carla and Paul were engaged and Paul was beginning to get bored with Carla. He came to her and said that he had the perfect idea for a Christmas present that only Carla could get for him. Her younger sister Tammy's virginity. If he couldn't have Carla's, he could get the same feeling if he took Tammy's. They supposedly looked like twins. Instead of being horrified by this request, Carla agreed. Carla claimed that she felt she didn't have another choice and she had to do what Paul told her to do. Or he would do to her what he was doing to these poor girls. Before this point, Carla had been helping him break into her sister's room. He wanted to watch her sleep and masturbate while he did so. He had her break the blinds in Tammy's room so that he could peek inside easier. And Carla let her fiance take her sister to the States, so across the border, to get beer and then didn't seem to care when he told her they had made out a little bit. Hmm. Tammy is the youngest sister. She's five years younger than Carla, and the year that Paul asked for Tammy's virginity, she was 15 and Carla was 20. So I don't want to know how old Tammy was when she was going across the border with Paul alone to get beer and making out with this dude who was eight years older than her. Carla and Tammy apparently had a sibling rivalry. Their middle sister, Lori, would later come out and explain that there was an incident that happened a short period of time before Tammy's murder. It was Tammy cuddling up to Paul in the rec room in front of the whole family. She started telling Carla that she was younger and prettier than her. Paul was going to marry her over Carla. Carla snapped and yelled at her to get the fuck out of the room and leave Paul alone. Criminal profiler Candace Scrapic would later come out and say that she believed that this was the breaking point to allow Carla to let herself do this to her sister. 
So I guess this was Carla's next step. She stole some Valium from the vet's office that she worked for going to the pharmacy and picking it up for clinic use so she wouldn't have to put a name down for it. She then brought the pills home and when the night came, the two of them waited for Carla's family to go to bed, inviting Tammy to stay up with them. They told her they could chat and drink some alcohol. You mean, I mean, she was 15, right? She's four years away from drinking age and this is her older sister and her brother-in-law. This was supposed to be someone they trusted. What else would sisters be for? Gross. I'm all for safely drinking and experimenting with alcohol. We all do it when we're teenagers. I'd much rather someone be drinking at home with someone who can call 911 than out in the woods somewhere. But this is a nightmare that's going to unfold. This girl, poor Tammy, was trying to trust her sister and drink with someone she trusted. She was just trying to have a good time before Christmas with her sister and her brother-in-law, with two people she trusted, two people she loved, someone who should have had her back in her darkest moments and who would betray that trust. Carla made up a special rum and eggnog cocktail for Tammy, crushing up the Valium and putting it in. Allegedly a few months before this, they had tried putting the pills in Tammy's spaghetti sauce. Paul tried to assault her this time as well, but she regained consciousness too quickly and, and he wasn't able to complete it. When Tammy was passed out from the pills this time, the assault began and Carla would videotape it. It started with Paul assaulting the unconscious girl as Carla held a cloth with halothane. Halothane is a sedative used in pet surgeries and it's applied with in a vaporized form. It is supposed to be a vapor, but Carla soaked a cloth in it and held it over her sister's face to kind of perform a double tap and keep Tammy asleep this time. It kept her asleep, but it definitely did more than that. When Paul was done with his assault, he demanded Carla climb on and assault her sister as well. She was disgusted in this, but only because Tammy was menstruating. She did the assault anyway. When she was done, Tammy began to choke on her own vomit and the halothane had begun to burn her face. Paramedics were called, but it was too late. Tammy died and when questioned, Carla and Paul said she must have been experimenting with drugs and alcohol. The burn around her mouth had to be rug burn from when she was dragged to the floor for CPR. The coroner believed them to be from the gastric acid from her throwing up and choking on her own vomit. Tammy's death was ruled natural causes. A 15-year-old healthy girl, natural causes. I've seen the crime scene photos from researching this case and I don't understand at all how they got away with the explanation they gave. The burns on Tammy's face are brutal and I'm sick that someone didn't go deeper into trying to figure out what happened. During investigations, an officer actually took a photo of the tape that sat on Carla's nightstand, but didn't review what could possibly be on it. The tape with Tammy's rape was photographed on the nightstand, but they didn't watch it. They were so close. Tammy was only 15. She was a beloved athlete at her school running for the track team and the cross country team, but her favorite sport was soccer. She was adored by her family and this was a major loss. Carla's parents were devastated. At her funeral, Tammy's headstone would be revealed to have a soccer ball on it as well as a photograph of her. It's a very good little tribute to the young girl.
after this, Paul and Carla became the dynamic duo we know of today. While Carla's parents were devastated, Carla moved on very quickly. After only a month, she allegedly called her friends to complain about wanting to move on with this whole death thing and have her parents get over Tammy so that they could just get on with Carla's wedding. Back at the pet store that she was working at when she met Paul, she had a co-worker that was very young, very beautiful, but we only know her as Jane Doe. She was 17 when Carla invited her over for a girl's night out. The girl agreed, and after her arrival, Carla drugged her with Helicon. Carla would later remark that she had done the girl's makeup and chatted with her while Paul went to get food, trying to make it a real girl's night experience. She wanted to create a proper atmosphere for the other girl and put her at ease. As soon as Paul could tell that Jane Doe was unconscious, he entered the room and raped her while they videotaped. Leslie Mahaffey was kidnapped as she was outside of her home. Late for curfew, she had been locked out of her house and unable to find somewhere to stay for the night. She didn't want to knock on the door and wake her parents up, so she just thought that she would stay outside and she'd be okay. The 14-year-old was known as a funny, vivacious, and slightly rebellious teen, but that just made her a little more unique. She was close to her family with a ton of love for her mom and little brother. She loved animals and loved to bake. She dreamed of becoming a marine biologist due to her particular love of dolphins. A little while before this, she was remembered to have been at a funeral, and she was remembered to be the one to wipe tears from people's eyes and trying to soothe and comfort people at this funeral. She had an infectious smile and was loved by everyone around her. This beautiful girl had Paul sneak up behind her and place a blindfold around her head before she was dragged into the car. She was tortured, raped, and murdered on video. While Paul would claim that Carla had overdosed her on medication after Carla had asked to be able to medicate the girl while Paul killed her, Carla would claim that Paul had strangled her to death with a telephone cord after the girl had told him that she didn't understand how his wife could stand to be around him. Carla said that she would give her a teddy bear to hold in between attacks and tried to comfort her. After they killed Leslie, they left her body in the basement for three days while they decided what to do next. Carla would go into that basement and get food from their pantry and just ignore the body sitting and staring at her. The body she would then claim Paul used a circular saw to chop it apart. He would encase each piece in cement after buying 12 bags of it from the store and throw it into Lake Gibson. One of the blocks was over 200 pounds and they couldn't get rid of it. They couldn't throw it into the water. It was too heavy. So this caused them in a frustrated throwing their hands up kind of deal to leave it on the shore where it would be discovered by a fisherman and his son. Her body was found on June 29th, 1991, the same day as Carla and Paul's fairy tale wedding, where Carla drowned in lace and ruffles and they had a horse-drawn carriage and she felt like a princess. No one would have ever noticed what was happening beneath those smiling faces. Carla's family even later said that they had never suspected either of these two. I can understand not suspecting your daughter, but I cannot imagine just having Paul fly under the radar the way he did with them. He was a charismatic, good-looking guy with an accountant job, apparently, according to them. 
even though he started smuggling cigarettes. I'm pretty sure he was still telling them he was being an accountant. He was, in their eyes at this time, a decent guy. I can kind of get it. After the wedding and while police investigated Leslie's death, Carla and Paul were in Hawaii on their honeymoon. I only hope they had no victims there that we don't know about. I only hope they kept their hunting grounds in Canada. At some point in this year, Carla got a pet iguana. And iguanas, if you don't know, are not the kindest lizards. They're very territorial, especially the males, as you probably would have guessed. They're, they're, they're known to bite, especially in mating season. And this one, well, it bit Paul, which pissed Paul off pretty well because he cut off the lizard's head, barbecued it, and ate the pieces in front of their friends. On August 10th, they brought poor Jane Doe back to the house where they do the same thing as before to her. They repeated the rape on Jane Doe, except this time she stopped breathing and Carla had to call 911. Then they revived her and then had to call 911 to say, oh no, just kidding, it's fine. She's fine, we're, we're good. Because that's not awkward. Or suspicious. Or suspicious! April 16th, 1991, the two rolled through town as Carla held a map in the driver's seat of their gold Nissan. The couple looked around until they spied 15-year-old Kristen French, who they called over and asked for help with directions. Carla hopped out of the car and distracted her, to give Paul time to get out of the car with a knife and force her inside. Paul jumped into the driver's seat and they pushed Kristen into the passenger seat, Carla sitting behind her with a firm grip in her hair to keep her from misbehaving. They tortured and sexually assaulted Kristen for three days before she was strangled with the same cord used to kill Leslie. They even at one point made her watch the videotape of what they had done to Leslie Mahaffey. Kristen had done the same routine every single day and her parents knew this, which caused the police to be called as soon as she was late coming home from school. They knew her routine down to the 15 minutes she would stop with her dog, and thank gods she did. Because of their quick action, the police were able to jump into action and were able to track down several witnesses who actually saw the abduction. And they found only one of the girl's shoes in a parking lot, which made the search even more urgent. Her father made a plea to the public for his daughter's return, which... Paul actually forced Kristen to watch. Kristen was known to be loving, sweet, social, and intelligent. She was an excellent ice skater, having won multiple awards in the sport in her short life. She was particularly good at precision ice skating, and this was her favorite pastime. She would also join the rowing team in high school. She loved to help other people, and it's remembered that one time she would bring homework to her good friend after this friend had broken their leg and had to take time off of school. She was referred to as sweet, gentle, happy Kristen, the sweetheart of the family by her mother. Despite her kind and beautiful soul who didn't want to hurt anyone, she would not take her attacks lying down, and I think that that is important also to remember about her. She defied Paul at one point. He would tell her to do something particularly degrading, and she looked at him and said some things are worth dying for as she told him no. She was forced to parrot back words and praises to Paul while she was being raped before asking if she could go to the bathroom when he was done and he was pissed telling her to fuck off. She had her little rebellions and I think that that is also something that ne needs to be remembered. 
She was sweet and kind, but she fought him as well. After Kristen was strangled, the couple left her in the house while Carla and Paul went to Easter dinner at Carla's parents' house. Supposedly, they were trying to defuse suspicion, and when they got home, they disposed of her naked remains in a dumpster in Burlington. She was found on April 30th, and she had been washed and her hair was cut off. Police initially believed this was a trophy, but it was confirmed that this was just to help with preventing her identification. A witness came forward claiming to see Kristen being forced into a cream-colored Camaro, which began an exhaustive search for the type of car. Which was futile since, again, the couple drove a gold Nissan. Jane Doe confronted Carla and Paul on December 22nd, 1992, about what they had been doing to her, and after this, there seemed to be a lot of strain between the couple. Paul beat Carla with a flashlight on December 27th, which caused her to go to the police. See, she first went to the family and told them about Paul hitting her before they would convince her to go to the police. She stayed with them and came clean about everything, including what she had done to Tammy. Her shocked parents told her she had to go to the authorities, and I can't even come close to beginning to imagine what was going through their minds. I'm sure they never, ever thought their daughter would be involved in this. And if they did, this is their oldest daughter. I'm sure there was a lot of denial going on. As for Carla, yes, yes, go to the police when he hits you, but not when he rapes and murders the others in front of you and makes you videotape it. That's fine, of course. Help with that. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yes, yes. I fucking can't with these people. Can you, can you hear the sarcasm dripping out of my mouth? When the police heard about the assault against her, they arrested Paul, but he was released on bail soon after. There was a link made between the Scarborough rapes and the St. Catharines murders. A month before the couple split, Paul's DNA was finally connected to the Scarborough rape case. Wow, took him long enough. Paul was arrested and Carla was brought in for questioning. During questioning, Carla quickly spilled her side of the story, explaining how she had been abused by Paul and how the night before they kidnapped Kristen, Paul had tied Carla up herself with the same cord he had strangled Leslie with and raped her in the same way he had raped Leslie. She explains how she was instructed by Paul to help out with everything and how if she didn't, she would be the next victim. The thing that I find most baffling is when I was watching the interrogations of Carla, she was very intent on making sure the police knew how angry she was that Paul had used their wedding glasses to drug girls. These were imported champagne flutes that were supposedly very expensive, and Carla talks about how angry she is about these flutes being used, not how horrified she is that these atrocities were committed in her home. This is brought up while she's talking about how she's a battered woman and dressed in ways that she's not normally dressed. I mention this because she's dressed to make herself look more innocent. She's dressed like an innocent little schoolgirl, and she's talking in a higher pitch, and she's talking to sound more innocent. And it's very frustrating to watch, but also deeply fascinating. Carla would end up being offered a plea deal. If she testified against Paul in court, she would get a reduced sentence. Carla would go to her aunt and uncle and tell them everything about everything with these murderers, and they would go to the police. They weren't able to use it against Paul, but they decided to use it to push for Carla to agree with this plea deal. Interesting choice, but 
We'll explain why soon. She ultimately decided to take the plea deal. If she had not gone with this deal, she would have been charged with two counts of first-degree murder, one second-degree murder, and various other crimes. She pleaded guilty to both counts of manslaughter and was sentenced to only 12 years in prison. 12 years. She kept telling the police to find the videotapes, find the videotapes, you gotta find the videotapes. But they weren't able to find them. They could not, they couldn't locate them. The only evidence they were able to recover were photos of Jane Doe, who Carla initially claimed were Tammy, and then police thought they were Kristen French. Are you confused yet? Exactly. So the tapes were lost until after Carla's sentencing. Despite a 71-day search of the house by authorities, they had not been able to find them. Turns out that Paul had told his lawyer where they were, and the man had hid them from evidence. They were hidden behind a ceiling tile, and some were labeled in Carla's handwriting, with flowers and hearts drawn on each label to make them just a bit more special. This lawyer would resign, and another would step in. When he found these tapes, he handed them to the authorities. As you should! For Paul's trial, some of the tapes were shown, but there was deep shame over Carla's plea bargain. Deep shame that is still felt today. They could only show some of the tapes. They weren't able to show anything that was deemed to be child pornography to the press and the public, but they could listen. Any details were later found in court transcripts. There was one videotape found of Carla and a prostitute assaulting an unconscious minor that took some time to identify. One recovered that was labeled in Paul's handwriting was labeled Carla, Tammy, and me. I feel disgusted saying that, especially as this was the video of the couple raping Tammy. For the most part, Carla seemed pretty disgusted in these tapes and kept telling Paul to hurry up as she did her job with the halothane rag. She helped clean up when they noticed Tammy had died and dragged the younger girl to her own bedroom instead of performing first aid like she had claimed. At the end of this video was Carla dressed as Tammy, having sex with Paul, and promising to find him more virgins. Carla tells Paul in these tapes that when he takes these girls' virginities, they become their children, and she will do this because she loves him. Carla admitted that helping Paul stalk, hunt, rape, and murder these girls was a way to remember her sister, in her mind. In one clip, the couple is shown laying naked on the floor, whispering sweet nothings like, Carla loved it when he raped her sister. Carla loved it when he took her, quote, sister's virginity. Paul asked her what this event had taught her, and Carla replied that it taught them that they liked little girls, so that Paul could take their virginity. Carla specifically said that she wanted 13-year-olds because this would almost guarantee that they were virgins. Albeit Carla's defense team did say that she had been coerced into saying the things she did, Paul allegedly said that he would beat her if she did not say the script of lines that he had given her. I don't know if I believe this, it just feels a little relaxed as she's nuzzling his penis and calling it snuffles. In the clip, she tells him she let him rape a little girl and she let him do this because she loved him. When he asked when they could start the hunt for virgins, she told him in the summer. She told him she would allow him to do it 50 more times if he wanted because she loved him. There was an offer to go in the car or stay home and clean up. She called herself his keeper of virgins. 
She tells him she will do this for him because he is the king and he deserves it. In this clip, while Carla is sucking on Paul's penis, she pulls out a paper bag full of a surprise. This surprise is Tammy's bra and panties. She tells him it's Tammy's and hands him the bra for him to sniff while she rubs the panties all over him and describes how she wants to do this to him forever and all this kind of other gross things. And then she grabs a rose and drags it over his chest saying how they're gonna bring it to Tammy's grave the next day. And they were going to do this because they loved her and she loved him and because she was his favorite. It was in this same videotape that Carla can be heard saying that she wants to have four children for Paul so that he can have their virginities. There is another clip of Paul holding a photograph of Tammy while Carla is dressed as her murdered sister, giving Paul oral sex and playing the part of Tammy, saying she is Tammy, she is 15 years old, and she loves him. How sick can you be? They were in Tammy's bedroom laying with all of her stuffed animals. Like, how fucked can you be? Criminal profiler Candace Scrapic, the one that I mentioned earlier, believes Carla suffered from malignant narcissism, which is the exact same type of narcissism that Paul is said to have suffered from. She believes that with Carla's very fragile ego, there was no way that she could handle the competition that Tammy ha gave. There was no way that she could handle the way that Paul's obsession had grown. And then after the incident in the rec room, she just kind of snapped. Carla would describe her sister as a real little bitch sometimes who was spoiled by everyone. She seemed to speak about her with spite after her death. Tammy's body would be exhumed after her death to help with the trial and have a second autopsy done to prove what Carla and Paul had done to her. While she was being exhumed, investigators found that the couple had filled her coffin with one a selfie of themselves and letters saying how much Carla loved and missed her little sister. Wedding invitations and little decorations. Thank you for being at my wedding cards and a final show-uppance against her little sister that Carla believed was stealing her man. At one point in the videotape of Leslie, Paul can be heard saying he would keep her if she kept doing as well as she had been doing. In another part of the clip, you can hear the poor girl crying out in pain as her blindfold starts to slip. At this point, I think this might have been what made them decide to kill her. She could possibly identify them if they let her go. A single accidental slip of the blindfold. I don't know how I feel about this, because if she had been allowed to live a little longer, yes, she would have suffered longer, but would she have been able to find a way to escape? We'll unfortunately never know. It's also possible that this speculation is completely false, as he'd already allowed her to see his face when he picked her up. But he had also mentioned and asked her, did you see my face, did you see my face, and she told him no and she said that she would not identify him if she let him go. It might have just been a show of distrust, or he might have just really wanted to kill her. We'll never know. There was only one video shown of Kristen, and it is stated that they believe Carla and Paul never intended to allow Kristen to live, as she was never blindfolded in the first place. She had full sight and could see her attackers completely as they tortured her the way they had Leslie. 
She was videotaped being forced to drink massive amounts of alcohol and apologized to Paul for calling him a bastard, while she complimented him and told him she deserved any punishment she got. After this, Carla is told to forcibly perform a sexual act on Kristen, and Paul is heard saying that it's, quote, okay if it hurts, as Kristen is also heard crying out in pain. Carla was a willing participant in these acts. In these tapes, she can be heard laughing and she can be seen actively engaging in these sexual assaults of these young women. She was not a battered wife like she claimed to be. Carla was abused, yes, but she was still seen to be enjoying the crimes she committed. But back to Paul. Paul claims that Carla is the one who did all of the killing. She apparently overdosed Leslie and beat Kristen with a rubber mallet while Kristen was tied around the neck with a rope that was connected to a hope chest. While she was being beaten, she tried to get away, and while she was trying to get away, this caused her to be strangled. Hmm, that sounds real likely, Paul. He was just there for the sexual assault part of it, and to hide the bodies, of course. Clearly, this did not fly in court, and he was sentenced to 25 years to life, and he was labeled as a dangerous offender. This means he is highly unlikely to ever be released from prison, and so far that's been holding up. He applied for probation once in 2018 and once in 2020, but was denied both times. He's kept in maximum security, and to be honest, because he keeps getting assaulted by other inmates, he's been separated from the rest of the prison. He's kept by himself in a cell 23 hours a day and comes out for one hour of exercise a day. Lucky him! I hope he's enjoying rotting in the hell he created for himself. It's what he deserves. Carla was released after her full sentence on July 4th, 2005. The fuck? Only one week before this occurred, Paul would come and make the statement that Carla originally wanted to kill Leslie Mahaffey by injecting an air bubble into her bloodstream. Carla moved on with her life and changed her name. She tried to have her name change be made private so that the public would no longer know her identity, but this was denied by authorities due to how widely known and widespread her case was. This case was super well known and super widespread. It was all over Canada and the states at the time. The states were actually the ones who gave them the name the Ken and Barbie Killers because, of course, Carla would move on to marry the brother of her lawyer and have two children. There was a time when she worked for a school, but when they realized who she was, she was swiftly kicked out. I want to know what kind of background checks were being done at the school to have this much of a fuck-up happen. I really want to know, because that's not good. I'm pretty sure there was an order or place that she wasn't supposed to be around six, anyone under 16. I'm not 100% sure on that one. That one is going off of my memory, not off of my notes. But I, I'm in awe. Like, she made a statement that she wanted to have Paul's kids so that he could assault his kids. That's fucked, and she should not be allowed to have her own children because she would allow them to be in that kind of situation. I'm not saying that her children are in this situation, but this should have been prevented because of the possibility. I'm, I'm very frustrated, but I also know that I am an uneducated fool on the internet. And as far as I know, the kids are happy and healthy and want to be left alone. Same with Carla. 
So even though she has accepted some interviews and some reporters, she says she wants to be alone. So I can respect that. I will not share her current name as she has stated she wants her privacy. I'm not in the mood to be sued. But something I find incredibly interesting is that she is divorced from Paul. Claims she wants nothing to do with him. She's done with that part of her life, and she's trying to bury those memories. But they both changed their last name to the exact same thing. Intriguing, no? The last name is one inspired, though spelled differently, by a famous character from the movie Criminal Law, which was released in 1988. It was said to be the couple's favorite movie. While Paul is behind bars serving the proper sentence for his crimes, Carla gets to run free and live the life she dreamed of. I only hope she has no more victims in her path of cruelty. I have to say that through watching interviews with Paul, he seems incredibly bitter about this. He constantly brings up the fact that Carla never had to do a polygraph and that they really should ask Carla the questions they still have, not him. Makes you wonder if he's bitter because she's gotten out or because she's moved on. If you or anyone else are suffering from violence, please reach out for help at your local helplines. You can find your province-specific ones at www.dawncanada.net forward slash issues forward slash crisis dash hotlines forward slash. It's an awesome directory listed by province. You just got to scroll through, find your province, scroll through under that, find the abuse helpline that suits your needs, click it, and it's awesome. It's got everything, every resource that you could possibly need, and you deserve all of the help that you can possibly get. Again, it's www.dawncanada.net forward slash issues forward slash crisis dash hotlines forward slash. If you or someone you know is suffering from a mental health crisis or need someone to talk to you about anything mental health related, you can dial 833-456-4566 for the Canadian Suicide Prevention Hotline. They're open 24-7, 365 a year, and they're available in both English and French. Again, this is 833-456-4566. For my American listeners, your hotline is one 800 273 8255. They're also open 24-7, 365 a year. And while I can't say they're available in French, they're available to everyone in America. Again, it's 1-800-273-8255. You guys are all worthy of so much support and so much love. All of the help is out there and you just need to reach out because you deserve more help than you think you deserve. If you want to continue learning about Canada's dark secrets, you can find me anywhere you find podcasts, as well as on YouTube. Thank you so much for your continued support and for listening. Stay safe out there, you guys. You guys are amazing.